Here's some music produced and composed by today's guest, Bill Stevens. This song is called Swingin' Down the Road. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. Today, I am speaking with Bill Stevens, who is a professor of music at Santa Clara, where he focuses on jazz piano. Bill has been blind since the age of 14, and he pursued music at the Oberlin Conservatory. Bill has also done work around deep listening, somatic experiencing, and the link between music and spirituality. Bill recently came out with a new album titled A Blues by Any Other Name, which is available on iTunes and Amazon. And on April 5th, Bill will be playing a recital, and tickets as well as his album are available on the VoicesOfSantaClara.com website. In this conversation, we discuss visualizing music as color, spirituality, healing, and Bill's journey through childhood, becoming a composer, scholar, and human. Go to scupresents.org to see the whole lineup of music and dance performances because there are lots of them coming up soon. Also, I just started a Twitter page for Voices of Santa Clara. It's at Voices of SCU, and you can check that out to get inspirational quotes from past guests as well as the links to articles and past episodes. So go follow me on Twitter there. And this conversation really blew my mind, and I hope it will blow yours as well. Bill is an incredibly inspirational guy, and I hope you can absorb some of that and be a little more creative in your life. Enjoy this interview. I'm excited to be here today with uh, Bill Stevens. Hello. Hello. I'd love to start out by asking about your relationship with music as a child. Um, was music uh, something you had to do, something you loved to do, and kind of how did you first become in- involved with music? Yeah, I uh, we had a beat-up piano kind of sitting in the corner of the dining room, and it was just one of those things that was kind of there. And, and I think when I was you know, maybe four years old, my mother uh, had won a, a set of you know, a month of piano lessons at an auction or something. And I was completely uninterested and my brother was interested. So he went and he came back and he was playing this little stepping up, stepping down, then a skip. And I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. And so I played that. But what what started to get me was that our, our babysitter then came over and showed us how to play the Star Wars theme. And, um, and of course, this was like 1982, so Star Wars was the thing. And uh, you know, we were we were doing uh, little skits in the backyard, and would do the three little pigs and the three little goats gruff, and then the the Yoda scene from Dagobah, right? And of course, I was Yoda because I was the little one. And uh, my, my my best friend was R two D two. We put a colander on his head and painted a box, etc. Anyway. Um, uh, and so I just I became curious uh, and uh, took some after school group lessons, you know, just just from the music teacher at my school. And that's, you know, uh, I had more vision uh, at the time. I'm, I'm almost totally blind now. And um, 
you know, started to learn to, to read music a little bit and wanted to work through that book and, and, um, and then started, started Suzuki uh, piano when I was seven, which is primarily a learning by ear uh, method. And, uh, and there was one day, I think it was in the fourth grade and I had a, I had a tune in my head uh, and I was like, huh, I wonder what that is. And I came home and I was kind of like checking out all my books and the, and the music that I'd played and, and that tune wasn't anywhere. And I was like, I, I think I just wrote my first tune and, and uh, wasn't sure how to write it down. So I just like literally took a piece of paper and wrote down the letter names, you know, G-A-B-G-G-A-A-B with no rhythm or whatever, but just, just kind of as a shorthand. And, um, you know, and then our, our music teacher kind of helped me write it down and the band director got interested and he arranged, arranged it for the band. And, and um, you know, I, I sort of left classical piano uh, for a while, um, you know, learned the blues scale when I was in middle school. You know, grew my hair long, wanted to be a rock and roller, um, et cetera. And uh, you know, lost most of my vision when I was 14, fairly, fairly suddenly. And um, it was always something that we knew uh, sort of genetically that I was prone to. And and, um, uh, and that's when I started to get serious, went off to a summer camp um, and that was focused on composition and improvisation and, and uh, started to have some, some fairly profound uh, almost spiritual experiences through, through music. And, um, and that's when it sort of became clear. So, okay, this is this is what I'm going to be doing. Hmm. Yeah. So, d- do you think becoming blind changed your relationship with music? Uh, uh, I'm sure it did. I mean, but but largely in a sense of it, it changed my relationship to so many other things. Hmm. And that music was one of those things that it didn't have to to you know, completely change my relationship with. So it was it was it, in some ways there was a process of elimination going on. Um, I mean, I, I was very interested in mathematics, uh, very interested in, in uh, you know, anything to do with computers, almost you know, double majored in math in college. Around the time that, that I lost my vision, we were actually doing um, uh, fairly advanced trigonometry and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, doing that when you can't look at the page is, is a little challenging. So, mm-hmm. so my mother and I would, would spend hours a day, you know, usually while we're waiting in the doctor's office at, at eye doctors, because I was in and out of, of the doctor's office pretty much you know, twice a week that year. And, um, you know, my mother is a, a fairly intuitive person, so she'd be trying to describe these graphs like saying, okay, imagine a snake wrapped around a stick. And I'd say, okay, mom, does the, X, does the graph start in the fourth quadrant or the third quadrant? And where does it cross the y-axis? And is it concave up here? And, you know, it's, and, and it took us a while to work out a system, you know, but it basically meant that I was, I was memorizing all my work. Uh, as we went, um, and and it, it worked well enough. I, mean, I got through uh, calculus one, two, three by the end of high school, um, and and um, uh, actually calculus three was really fun because that's when things become really physical visual. And and ironically, I'm I'm primarily a visual learner. I'm primarily a visual thinker. Uh, so my relationship to sound is is largely visual. I hear notes and I'm seeing uh, color associations, not uh, kind of literally, but mostly imaginative. Um, you know, um, and uh, you know, so if, if I can see a note, you know, then I can say, oh well, that's a G and that's a D flat and that's a B flat. You know, et, et cetera. Um, you know, 
yeah, what is it what is it like to see a note? Because I feel yeah. like, I feel like it's almost like people who have vision maybe aren't as good at, at both hearing and visualizing because they can rely so much it's, on it's interesting that the the folks that I've heard, you know, that I've talked to who have what's known as perfect pitch, um, tend to associate notes with colors. Uh, yeah, so one of my colleagues does this. Um, of course, my colors and his colors don't all match up, right? You know, but, but it gets blurry and messy because the sound of a G on a piano is going to be very different than the sound of a G on a violin, right? Because mm-hmm. violins for me are, are generally red and, and piano notes are generally white. But then there's the color association with the different notes. And, and, and it, 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 so it's... it's um, I wish there was a way that I could just kind of print it out and give someone that experience, but that there's no way to do that. And it's, and it's, it's in some ways more layered than that. I, I, I do this with, uh, letters, you know, so letters, of the alphabet have, have color associations. There was once when I was talking to someone on the phone, he was giving me information about a, a conference I was about to go to years ago. And, um, and when we got off the phone, I was like, okay, I, I don't remember his name. But from the color of his voice, I'm guessing that his name is Alan. Not because people named Alan have voices that sound a certain way, but because the first information that he gave me was, hi, my name is Alan. And okay, that's so A is kind of an orange and yeah, or the L is, is sort of a soft green and then another A and then the N is a, a darker green. And, and all of my perception of the sound of his voice was coming through the filter of the colors of his name. And, and I did meet him a week later and he's, Oh, you know, hi Bill, it's Alan. We spoke on the phone. Right. I was like, Oh, you know, who knew, right. You know, that, 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 that was in fact, uh, was in fact his name. So it, it, um, you know, the brain is pretty remarkable, right. I don't get a lot of visual stimulation. And so that, that part of the brain tends to be, fairly active for me in, in imaginative ways and has just gotten sort of cross-linked with um, ideas and, and shapes and, and uh, sounds, et cetera. So, mm. so. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. You also mentioned that in fourth grade, you just heard the the tune in, in your head and you had to compose it. So is that yeah. is that something that continued to happen where you, you would just hear music and then go to the... You know, make it sometimes, or, or sometimes it happens the other way, you know, or it's like, oh, I'm just a piano, so I'm going to play these notes. Oh, what did that do? And so I'll, uh, let me add a few notes to that. Ooh, mm, that wasn't at all what I intended, but that's kind of fun. So let's go that way and, and et cetera. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a philosophy in improvisation where you say, you say yes to whatever happens, mm. you know, uh, whether it's something that, that, you know, you intended, or if you're improvising with other people, something that somebody else did. You know, because uh, the moment you're like, no, 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 that's not where it's going, right? Then you're shutting down the process, right? But if you're just in the habit of, of saying yes to, to wherever, wherever the music is, is is leading, it will lead you places that you don't expect, right? And and, uh, and there's there's kind of a challenge to keep up with that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, I find it's a, a challenge to can I can I be fully in this moment? Can I be fully awake, fully uh, receptive, fully alive? And, uh, it's a good challenge in music. It's a good challenge in life too. Hmm. Yeah. So after high school in conservatory, you designed yeah. a major called oral music. Yes. Uh, yes. Focusing so, on listening and improvisation. So yeah. Absolutely. Why did you want to pursue that? And how that? Happen? Well, it was it was mostly that I was I was becoming increasingly frustrated with with other avenues of study. So I, I was studying composition, um, but composition is mostly about putting notes on paper. 
right? Uh, I mean, it's about knowing what notes you want to put down, et cetera. And, and there were several software programs that I was working with at that time, but they were, they were not developed enough um, to really let me do what, what I would need to do. Or I might you know, spend 20 minutes composing a piece of music and then it would take eight hours to translate that into notation. And, and um, you know, in the last 20 years, some of those programs have developed quite a bit, and 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 um, you know, so I, I can go back and and you know have started doing more composing actually since since I arrived uh, here in Santa Clara. But um, uh, you know, so uh, that was a frustration. Um, studying classical music was was uh, a bit of a frustration again, just because there's so much you know, learning music from the page, and uh, I, I sort of. I wanted to design a major that would let me have a relationship to music that was pretty immediate where I wasn't having to go through uh, other people either to, to explain to me what the music on the page was or to help me write down my own ideas or, or, you know, or go through software that maybe could get the job done, but in a fairly inefficient way. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of like when I go grocery shopping, I like to get to the store, get what I want and get home and, and be done with it. And, and some of what I was doing in college was a little more like, okay, I'm going to walk, you know, two miles to the grocery store and then load all the groceries into a backpack and carry them home. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's possible, but it wasn't really practical. Um, and, and it certainly wasn't efficient. And, and, uh, and I just, I found that really tedious. So that's when I started to go deeper with my relationship with the piano, um, which was kind of challenging because I was at a conservatory with extraordinary pianists. Uh, and I, I had gotten in as a composer, uh, but then I was doing less composing because of my frustrations with notation. Uh, trying to give myself permission to be bad at the piano long enough that it would take to, to get better um, while surrounded by people who were doing that at a very high level. And, and, uh, and it, it, it took me a while to sort of find clarity about how to do that. Uh, you know, both in terms of you know understanding the process of how does one get better at a craft because I, I wasn't very consistent and I wasn't very patient um, when I was younger and um, <laughs> yeah. shrug my shoulders and say oh well right you know, but um, yeah. yeah yeah the theme of listening comes up again and again and you got a teaching certificate in deep listening and so I think maybe in society we throw around listening a lot or be a good listener right but right. what is what does deep listening mean and what significance does it have yeah, for so you? deep listening is the work that comes uh from a composer pauline oliveros uh who's who's uh an extraordinary uh sort of composer of the 20 20th and early 21st centuries who did a lot of work um really being curious about all sounds so so often in music we we're, we're focusing on a foreground um you know, if we're listening to, to a piano trio, piano violin, you know, cello, you know, what, what, what's the sound of that ensemble? What are the, the notes, phrases, rhythms, uh, articulations that the composer was intending? Uh, deep listening sort of goes way beyond that and so says, you know, I want to listen to the sounds uh, in the environment uh, with, with just as much attention as I am bringing to, to the musical sounds. So in this room, as we are speaking, there's a fair amount of kind of buzz in the background coming from some of the electronics. 
the sound of my voice in this room is different than the sound of my voice would be if we were downstairs in the recital hall, you know, which would be a much more sort of acoustically ambient space. Or if we were outside, uh, you know, in, in the cold, and the, 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 the sound would be a lot more uh, muffled uh, because there would not be uh, you know, the walls sort of uh, echoing the sound back to it. So a lot of, a lot of subtle uh, things along those lines. Um, some things I've been fascinated by, you know, when I was uh, a, uh, in elementary school, you know, once a week, they would uh, pull me out of class to do uh, what's known as orientation mobility training. So, so um, I, I had fairly limited vision then, but enough to read very large prints. I could read through a 24 or 32 point font with my nose up against the page. Um, you know, I, I couldn't uh, recognize people's faces, but I, I knew my friends mostly by the color of their hair and the length of the hair. And I get to know uh, the clothing that they would tend to wear because I could see the, you know, the colors and the patterns. Um, though never, never, never well enough to sort of have the experience of eye contact or, mm-hmm. or, or reading facial expressions, body language, those things. Uh, so they would they would take me out of um, class once a week for orientation mobility training. So things like how do you how do you know when it's safe to cross the street if you can't see the the streetlights? Um, uh, you know things like that. And one of the things that that uh, my teacher Pam Matheson was was showing me is that uh, sound reflects. In, in different ways. So if you if you run your hand over your ear, even though your hand isn't directly making sound, you can almost feel it when your hand is going by your ear because it changes the way in which all of the other sounds that you're hearing reach your ear because they're they're reflecting off of your hand. And and deep listening is, is sort of like making a practice of that. Um, uh, you know, walking into a space and and hearing the the size of the room based on on uh, just all of the the ambient sounds and, and the echoes and, and the, the way that the container of the environment holds the sounds that are in the foreground. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Pauline took that as a point of departure for improvisation, uh, not improvisation in a jazz sense per se, but, but sound improvisation. You know, these kinds of, of things and, and made it her art. And, uh, you know, and because so much of my association with sound had been largely visual, um, and actually I've only ever had vision in one eye, so my, my visual perception has only ever been two-dimensional, my tendency was for my sound perception to be two-dimensional as well because it was sort of mapping uh, through my visual orientation. And, and so it was, it was helpful for me to visit the deep listening work. It was very hard. A lot of people expected me to be really good at it just sort of innately, um, but it was, it was quite the opposite. It was, it was very challenging for me, but really good for me because it could help me hear in and of itself without, without having to hear through, uh, through visual association. Help me hear in three dimensions, which, which after I lost almost all of my vision was, was hugely important in terms of navigating the world. One thing you brought up earlier was that um, starting at a, at a younger age, but I assume more now, uh, music took on uh, something more more significant than just a hobby or a career, but it yeah. had some spiritual elements yeah, as well. So how, how do you see that link between music and spirituality? I, I, I think of spirituality as uh, the experience of creativity, creation, creator. All of those are kind of interlinked in, in many ways um and and the experience of 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 connection 
to the world outside of oneself uh, through creativity, creation, creator, etc. And um, uh, so, some of the most profound spiritual experiences for me, sort of by that definition, have been when I'm when I'm in a community that is is going deep with uh, creativity, uh, and and sometimes that's been. As, as part of music programs, either where, where I've been a student or, or, or teaching, um, you know, where, the, where there's a, a particular emphasis on creativity. So I taught for many years at this program called the Walden School, uh, where I was a student, um, you know, in high school and first starting to have some of those experiences. Uh, the, the deep listening retreats with Pauline Oliveros were, were an occasion for that, but also, also dance. Um, I love dance improvisation. I studied a form called contact improvisation when I was in, in college and um, have been involved at, at different times with, with ecstatic dance, so uh, just, just uh, improvisation through movement. Um, and and you know, doing some retreats in those communities often, often have a, a very sort of spiritual quality to me because it's, it's, uh, it's connecting with the community of other people. That experience that brings me out of my own head because things tend to get fairly busy in my own head mm-hmm. and, and um, into, a, into a broader community that's, that's uh, exploring improvisation, exploring being fully in the present moment. Mm-hmm. How, how do we be fully present in, in the present moment? Because I feel like that's a, becoming more and more of a, a theme, you know, as mindfulness and these other right, kinds absolutely. of meditation are kind of taking absolutely. off in society. Absolutely. Well, one of the one of the themes you know, with mindfulness and meditation is, is practice. You know, uh, yeah, the, the brain is is so amazingly flexible. It's, it's such a gift. Uh, yeah, the the just the, the nature of the brain is is so adaptable, um, and uh, and so it's it's I. I Kind of feel like if there's something I want more of my life, is there a way that I can practice that? Um, you know, and, and in the same way that it's oh, I want to be more in shape, so I'm going to spend more time on the treadmill. It's it's, it's um, I'd like to I'd like to be more present. Can I spend more time paying attention to to what's going on? You know, and something you know, and thoughts happen. Thoughts happen all the time. And so the deep listening philosophy is just hear your thoughts the way that you would hear sounds. You know, kind of kind of in the way that the the meditation philosophy of notice your thoughts the way that you would notice clouds. Oh, there's a big cloud. Oh, there's a little wispy cloud. You know, without sort of getting caught up in in you know this is my thought and and letting the thought sort of run away with you. Just just be be the thinker of the thought, if if you will. Um, and it's a practice. And and so the willingness to be spectacularly bad at it um, is is prerequisite to to being a, a little bit better, to being a little bit better, to being a little bit better, to becoming. Uh, you know, eventually proficient. Mm-hmm. Are there any practices in your life that you do to try to be more present in the, either in the moment or with your music? Oh my goodness, yes. Um, so I spend a lot of time with scales uh, uh, in terms of really uh, building my relationship with with the piano. Um, you know, I, I've, I have some amazingly skilled uh, pianists as colleagues, uh, Hans Bopel, Teresa McCullough, and, and learning as much as I can from them by, by asking them questions, talking to their students, you know. Um, and and you know, so I've, I've developed a huge respect for, for scale time. Um, and so I, 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 it's my intention to do an hour a day, six days a week of, of just that. Um, uh, bringing in the practice of presence 
with it? You know, can I can I be sort of present in my ears, not letting my attention go into the piano to the sound of the piano, but letting the sound of the piano come in to my ears? Can I be aware of my feet? Um, letting my eyes and my thinking focus be soft, uh, you know, all of these. And it's, it's a moment-by-moment moment, uh, thing. I'm, I'm uh, trying to spend time with Bach uh, six, six days a week right now, time at the moment with some arpeggios. I'm preparing a recital in, in April, so a lot of time with, with that music. It's a, a, a jazz program, the music of Billy Strayhorn, who was the... Uh, sort of the ace composer and collaborator with, with the Duke Ellington band. So mm -hmm. tunes like Take the A-Train, Satin Doll uh, are some of the famous ones that, that we associate with Duke Ellington, but that are, are in fact really straight horn tunes. Um, as a, a composer that I've always just felt a resonant with, resonance with, and, and um, I'm really excited that, that I have sort of time and space and, and opportunity now to, to focus on, on his music. Um, oh, goodness. Uh, you know, there's some practices... Uh, there's, a, there's an author about brain health, uh, Daniel Amen, who's a, a neuropsychiatrist, uh, who, who says, you know, if you want to improve the health of your brain, uh, spend five minutes every day writing down things that you're grateful for. Mm. Uh, so that's a practice I do. Um, there's another practice from a book called The Power of Rest uh, that's that's uh, intended to, to you know, allay, uh, you know, one of the one of the biggest causes for lack of sleep is, is often worry and anxiety. And so, what he says is, is, "Hey, at the end of the workday, you write down what are the top five things that I might be worried about, and then write down, you know, what's what's a little thing for each that I might do to kind of make make things better." And um, and so, I try to make that, you know, a, a six day a week practice. Before, before the gratitude, etc. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, your practice is a big theme for me. So, I think the answer to your question is yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, we touched on music and spirituality, but yeah. also uh, there's this idea of healing that you've done some work with, and how music can right. kind of provide more than more than just an in the moment experience, but it can help. Uh, help like restore functioning after overwhelming life experiences. So yeah. And so, so uh, I think you're referring to the, the somatic experiencing work, which is actually is, is not music specific. Um, so um, I had a lot of experiences growing up, uh, emotional experiences that I just didn't know how to digest in the moment. Right. And, and, um, and, and, and my way of coping was, was to, 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 kind of bury them away and pretend that everything was fine. And, uh, and what, what tends to happen is the weight of those undigested experiences just, just sort of builds until you know, sooner or later you deal with them. And, and um, so uh, in my, in my mid twenties uh, it was, it was very clear that I needed to develop you know, sort of skills of, of uh, you know, processing emotion and, and more, more fluency in, in, in those areas for my life to just move forward because uh, the weight of, of sort of unprocessed experiences was 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 very overwhelming at that point. Uh, so I connected with a really fantastic um, program in New York City called Helix and, and their mission was to bring together the divide between uh, psychological teachings about healing and spiritual teachings about healing from Western and non-Western cultures. Uh, and so uh, we were doing a lot of gestalt therapy and process work and, and, and some, some uh, Jungian-based uh, you know, sort of analysis along with uh, a lot of uh, Buddhist teaching and, and meditation practice and some shamanic work from, from a Peruvian tradition 
uh, the Four Winds tradition, as it's known in the West. And, and, uh, uh, and, it, and it was designed as a self-transformational program. And it wasn't clear to me at the time, am I interested in practicing um, you know, as a, as a psychotherapist uh, coming out of that work, or, or am I mostly doing this uh, for my own personal growth and development? But it was, it was very clear that I, I did very much need it for my own growth and development. Um, so a lot of my uh, sort of people skills uh, that, that come into my teaching are coming out of that work. Um, uh, you know, part of what I do is, is coach students through performance anxiety because in, in the musicianship program, I teach all of our musicianship classes here. Uh, you, know, um, you know, we do a lot of performing. We, we play exercises at, at, at the piano for, for, you know, our harmony work. We sing melodies and, and you know, sing and clap rhythms and, and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, so helping people sort of move through you know, the various feelings that come up around that experience. There's an indirect way that that's, that's panned out. Um, I went on to, to pursue certification in, in work called somatic experiencing, which I, I love very deeply. It's, it's, um, it's about trauma healing, um, but we can define trauma very loosely as, as any experience that, that is too much too quickly you know, for the nervous system to fully digest in the moment. Um, and so that can be uh, some of the great big experiences that we uh, sort of commonly recognize as being traumatic, uh, you know, car crashes and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, but it can also uh, be much more subtle experiences. The, the, the trauma is not in this community, the teachings, the trauma is not in the events, the trauma is in how the nervous system experiences the event. Um, and the, the principles are, are, are basically taking the big overwhelming energy, the activation of the trauma, and breaking it up into very small digestible pieces. So that at any one time, you're only working with a small piece, right? Which is which is very much like like teaching. You know, it's like I can't teach the whole subject at once, right? So we're going to take just a tiny little bit, so it's enough to be challenging, but not so much that it's overwhelming. And then we'll take the next little piece and the next little piece. Um, but helping the helping the nervous system in particular orient to the activation of trauma in that way. Hmm. Um, and then the other principle is, is pendulation. So we have more intense, waves of more intense, less intense, more intense, less intense. And that's been hugely helpful for me as a musician also, because I used to think that the way to get better was to work at high intensity all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Because that was sort of the climate at the conservatory, that if you weren't working every moment, somebody else was, and, and they'd be getting ahead and, and, and whatnot. And, um, and that's a very inefficient way to learn, thankfully. It's a very unpleasant way to live, you know, also. Um, you know, that learning happens best when we have more intense, less intense. Like sprint, rest, sprint, rest, right? Um, and um, But that, that's also how how we strengthen the nervous system. It's almost like weight lifting for the nervous system. And so in, in my own sort of practice, you know, like, like uh, on days that aren't teaching days for me, um, you know, I'll, I'll do a half an hour of very intense work and then I'll do a half hour of something that, that is not sort of thinking mind intense. Maybe I'm, I'm just lying down listening to music or, or Maybe I'm working out, you know, getting my, my body moving, whatever. But uh, but that sort of fluctuation of half hour on, half hour off just seems to work really, really well for me. Um, and it's, it's something that I recommend to my students uh, also. But 
the parallels uh, kind of happened for me later, uh, coming out of, of the healing the healing work and realizing that that so much of improvisation, so much of creativity, and as a musician, is about you know, sort of being able to be fully in the present moment, and and the the, the um, in the somatic experience the community they could define trauma as any any impairment in one's ability to be fully in the present moment um, and so that the, the connection there is, is fairly strong yeah as a final question what what message would you give to people either about appreciating music or being in the presence or really any message that you would want to give Gosh, one of the themes that comes that comes through, or that I hope comes through in my teaching, uh, I mean, nominally I'm teaching students music skills, uh, but on a more deep level, my hope is that I am giving students an experience of their own competence. And, and this comes not from telling them how smart they are, how talented they are, which seems like a good idea, but tends to backfire. But it, it comes from guiding them through a journey of, of discovering that they're capable of doing more than, than, than they thought. Um, and, uh, you know, we, and, and we do this by applying these principles. It's a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, show up today, work at it, show up tomorrow, work at it, trust partial progress, continue to show up uh, consistently, uh, use practice to get better. Um, so work on the things that, that we're not good at uh, and, and just trusting that process over time and by the end of the quarter, uh, so often we can look back as a class and say, wow, you know, notice what we just did and, and probably hadn't imagined uh, you know, 10 weeks ago that that would have been possible. And, and so it's, it's my belief that that's what uh, gives us as human beings conf confidence in ourselves is, is, is having the experience of, of competence. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's my deeper goal in, in teaching, um, is to give, give students uh, faith in their own ability to learn. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can read a transcript at VoicesOfSantaClara.com and follow the new Twitter page at VoicesOfSCU. Have a great day, and I'll see you next time.